This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear The Night in Question by Tobias Wolf. On The Night in Question, Frank said, Mike's foreman called up and asked him to take another fellow's shift at the drawbridge station where he'd been working. A Monday night it was, mid-January, bitter cold. The story was chosen by Akhil Sharma, whose fiction has been appearing in The New Yorker since 1997. His latest novel, Family Life, is coming out this month. Hi, Akhil. Hi, Deborah. So The Night in Question was published in the magazine in 1996, which was not long before you were first published here and starting out with your own first novel. Was that when you started reading Tobias Wolf? Was it a formative time in your own development as a writer? The first time I read him was in 1992 or 93, mm-hmm. and it was his memoir. This Boy's Life? Yeah, that's a wonderful memoir. The intensity he brings to fiction, though, is sort of magnitudes greater. What he does is not something that I would choose to do because the intensity that he generates is almost painful. Like, I've read this story many times, and every time I wonder what parts am I going to skip <laughs> because it's so painful. Yeah. And that's, that's a level of danger that I'm not willing to engage with in my relationship with my reader. I see. You don't want to put anyone through that. I am so afraid of being ignored that I'm unwilling to take that risk. Right. You're afraid of someone skipping the, the tough parts. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I want to torment my reader, but I, would, I think I would treat my reader like, you know, the lobster that you put into boiling water. And so the poor creature doesn't know that it's dying. Whereas with Tobias Wolf, the poor creature knows that he's dying and begins shrieking almost immediately. <laughs> And do you think that's true of all of his stories or or this one in particular? It's especially true of this story, but these sort of nested stories are very, I mean, it seems like a very common thing that he does. It is not representative of everything he does, Mm -hmm. but it's something that he has done frequently. So as you're saying, the night in question has a kind of story within the story, and that's where it draws its intensity from the interaction between these two? It draws its intensity, first of all, based on the subject matter, both of the story, the nested story, and then the story that is containing it. Both are incredibly emotional and sort of frighteningly emotional. So they're very powerful because of the content. Another reason that they are remarkably powerful is that they feel just slightly askew from reality. You know, there's something deliberately artificial about it. Even the the language of the opening paragraph moves through various registers very quickly. The time is not specific. And that artificiality means that we end up focusing not on the world in general, but on this particular world. And not even on this particular world, but the emotions of this world, because those are the most real things within the story. So listeners know that there's a story within this story. And what they don't know is that the story is basically a conversation that takes place between a brother and a sister, Frank and Francis. Is there anything else that you think they should, they should know before they embark on it? I sort of feel that some of the genius of this story, and I think of this story as just really a work of genius, you almost need to see on the printed page because so many subtle things are happening within the text. Those subtle changes, those moves in the register and diction get lost when they're being read out loud. When we read something out loud, the credibility of a human voice makes 
things which are a little bit unnatural sound natural. And so I feel like it should be read on the page. So go and, go and read it and then come back and hit play. Yes. <laughs> we'll talk a bit more after the story. And now here's Akhil Sharma reading The Night in Question by Tobias Wolfe. Francis had come to her brother's apartment to hold his hand over a disappointment in love. But Frank ate his way through half the cherry pie she'd brought him and barely mentioned the woman. He was in an exalted state over a sermon he'd heard that afternoon. Dr. Violet had outdone himself, Frank said. This was his best. This was the gold standard. Frank wanted to repeat it to Francis, the way he used to act out movie scenes for her when they were young. Gotta run, Frankie. It's not that long, Frank said. Five minutes, ten, at the outside. Three years earlier, he had driven Francis's car into a highway abutment and almost died, then almost died again in detox of a grand mal seizure. Now he wanted to preach sermons at her. She supposed she was grateful. She said she'd give him ten minutes. It was a muggy night, but as always, Frank wore a long-sleeved shirt to hide the weird tattoos he woke up with one morning when he was stationed in Manila. The shirt was white, starched, and crisply ironed. The tie he'd worn to church was still cinched up hard under his prominent Adam's apple. A big man in a small room, he paced in front of the couch as he gathered himself to speak. He favored his left leg, whose knee had been shattered in the crash. Every time his right foot came down, the dishes clinked in the cupboards. Okay, here goes, he said. I'll have to fill in here and there, but I've got most of it. He continued to walk slowly, deliberately, hands behind his back, head bent at an angle that suggested meditation. My dear friends, he said, you may have read in the paper not long ago of a man of our state, apparent like many of yourselves here today, but apparent with a terrible choice to make. His name is Mike Bowling. He's a railroad man, Mike, a switch man, been with the railroad ever since he finished high school, same as his father and grandfather before him. He and Janice have been married ten years now. They were hoping for a whole houseful of kids, but the Lord decided to give them one instead, a very special one. That was nine years ago. Benny, they named him, after Janice's father. He died when she was just a youngster, but she remembered his big lopsided grin and the way he threw back his head when he laughed, and she was hoping some of her dad's spirit would rub off on his name. Well, it turned out, she got all the spirit she could handle, and then some. Benny, he came out in high gear and never shifted down. Mike liked to say you could run a train off him, the energy he had. Good student, natural athlete, but his big thing was mechanics. One of those boys, you put him in the same room with the clock, and he's got it in pieces before you can turn around. By the time he was in second grade, he could put the clocks back together, not to mention the vacuum cleaner and the TV and the engine of Mike's old lawnmower. This didn't sound like Frank. Frank was plain in his speech, neither formal nor folksy, so spare and sometimes harsh that his jokes sounded like challenges or insults. Francis was about the only one who got them. This tone was putting her on edge. Something terrible was going to happen in the story, something Francis would regret having heard. She knew that, but she didn't stop him. Frank was her little brother, and she would deny him nothing. When Frank was still a baby, not even walking yet, Frank Sr., their father, had set out to teach him the meaning of the word no. At dinner, he'd dangle his wristwatch before Frank's eyes, then say no and jerk it back just as Frank grabbed for it. 
When Frank persisted, Frank Sr. would slap his hand until he was howling with fury and desire. This happened night after night. Frank would not take the lesson to heart. As soon as the watch was offered, he snatched at it. Frances followed her mother's example and said nothing. She was eight years old, and while she feared her father's attention, she also missed it and resented Frank's obstinacy and the disturbance it caused. Why couldn't he learn? Then her father slapped Frank's face. This was on New Year's Eve. Frances still remembered the stupid tasseled hats they were all wearing when her father slapped her baby brother. In the void of time after the slap, there was no sound but the long rush of air into Frank's lungs as, red-faced, twisting in his chair, he gathered himself to scream. Frank Sr. lowered his head. Frances saw that he'd surprised himself and was afraid of what would follow. She looked at her mother, whose eyes were closed. In later years, Frances tried to think of a moment when their lives might have turned by even a degree, turned and gone some other way. And she always came back to this instant when her father knew the wrong he had done, was shaken and open to rebuke. What might have happened if her mother had come flying out of her chair and stood over him and told him to stop now and forever? Or if she had only looked at him, confirming his shame? But her eyes were closed and stayed closed until Frank blasted them with his despair and Frank Sr. left the room. As Frances knew even then, her mother could not allow herself to see what she had no strength to oppose. Her heart was bad. Three years later, she reached for a bottle of ammonia, said, Oh, sat down on the floor and died. Frances did oppose her father. In defiance of his orders, she brought food to Frank's room when he was banished stood up for him and told him he was right to stand up for himself. Frank Sr. had decided that his son needed to be broken and Frank would not break. He went after everything his father said no to, with Francis egging him on and mothering him when he got caught. In time, their father ceased to give reasons for his displeasure. As his silence grew heavier, so did his hand. One night, Francis grabbed her father's belt as he started after Frank, and when he flung her aside... Frank head-rammed him in the stomach. Frances jumped on her father's back, and the three of them crashed around the room, and when it was over, Frances was flat on the floor with a split lip and a ringing sound in her ear, laughing like a madwoman. Frank was crying. That was the first time. Frank Sr. said no to his son in everything, and Frances would say no to him in nothing. Frank was aware of her reluctance and learned to exploit it most shamelessly in the months before his accident. He'd invaded her home, caused her trouble at work, nearly destroyed her marriage. To this day, her husband had not forgiven Frances for what he called her complicity in that nightmare. But her husband had never been thrown across a room or kicked or slammed headfirst into a door. No one had ever spoken to him as her father had spoken to Frank. He did not understand what it was to be helpless and alone. No one should be alone in this world. Everyone should have someone who kept faith, no matter what, all the way. On the night in question, Frank said, Mike's foreman called up and asked him to take another fellow's shift at the drawbridge station where he'd been working. A Monday night it was, mid-January, bitter cold. Janice was at a PTA meeting when Mike got the call, so he had no choice but to bring Benny along with him. It was against the rules, strictly speaking but he needed the overtime and he'd done it before more than once. Nobody ever said anything. 
Benny always behaved himself, and it was a good chance for him and Mike to buddy up, batch it a little. They'd talk and kid around, heat up some francs. Then Mike would set Benny up with a sleeping bag and air mattress. A regular adventure. A bitter night, like I said. There was a furnace at the station, but it wasn't working. The guy Mike relieved had on his parka and a pair of mittens. Mike ribbed him about it, but pretty soon he and Benny put their own hats and gloves back on. Mike brewed up some hot chocolate and they played gin rummy or tried to. It's not that easy with gloves on. But they weren't thinking about winning or losing. It was good enough just being together, the two of them, with the cold wind blowing up against the windows. Father and son, what could be better than that? Then Mike had to raise the bridge for a couple of boats and things got pretty tense because one of them steered too close to the bank and almost ran aground. The skipper had to reverse engines and go back down river and take another turn at it. The whole business went on a lot longer than it should have, and by the time the second boat got clear, Mike was running way behind schedule and under pressure to get the bridge down for the express train out of Portland. That was when he noticed Benny was missing. Frank stopped by the window and looked out in an unseeing way. He seemed to be contemplating whether to go on. But then he turned away from the window and started in again, and Francis understood that this little moment of reflection was just another part of the sermon. Mike calls Benny's name. No answer. He calls him again, and he doesn't spare the volume. You have to understand the position Mike is in. He has to get the bridge down for that train, and he's got just about enough time to do it. He doesn't know where Benny is, but he has a pretty good idea just where he isn't supposed to be, down below in the engine room. The engine room, the mill, as Mike and the other operators call it. You can imagine the kind of power that's needed to raise and lower a drawbridge, aside from the engine itself, all the winches and levers, pulleys and axles and wheels and so on, massive machinery, gigantic screws turning everywhere, gears with teeth like file cabinets, They've got catwalks and little crawlways through the works for the mechanics, but nobody goes down there unless they know what they're doing. You have to know what you're doing. You have to know exactly where to put your feet, and you've got to keep your hands in clothes and wear all the right clothes. And even if you know what you're doing, you never go down there when the bridge is being moved. Never. There's just too much going on, too many ways of getting snagged and pulled into the works. Mike has told Benny a hundred times, stay out of the mill. That's the iron rule when Benny comes out to the station. But Mike made the mistake of taking him down for a quick look one day when the engine was being serviced, and he saw how Benny lit up at the sight of all that steel, all that machinery. Benny was just dying to get his hands on those wheels and gears, see how everything fit together. Mike could feel it pulling at Benny like a big magnet. He always kept a close eye on him after that until this one night when he got distracted. And now Benny's down in there. Mike knows it as sure as he knows his own name. Francis said, I don't want to hear this story. Frank gave no sign that he'd heard her. She was going to say something else, but made a sour face and let him go on. To get to the engine room, Mike would have to go through the passageway to the back of the station and either wait for the elevator or climb down the emergency ladder. He doesn't have time to do the one or the other. He doesn't have time for anything but lowering the bridge and just barely enough time for that. He's got to get that bridge down now or the train is going into the river with everyone on board. 
This is the position he's in. This is the choice he has to make. His son, his Benjamin, or the people on that train. Now, let's take a minute to think about the people on that train. Mike's never met any of them, but he's lived long enough to know what they're like. They're like the rest of us. There are some who know the Lord and love their neighbors and do right by them and live in the light. And there are the others. On this train are men who whisper over cunning papers and take from the widow even her mean portion. On this train is the man whose factories kill and maim his workers. There are thieves on this train and liars and hypocrites. There is the man whose wife is not enough for him, who cannot be happy until he possesses every woman who walks the earth. There is the false witness. There is the bribe-taker. There is the woman who abandons her husband and children for her own pleasure. There is the seller of spoiled goods, the coward and the usurer. And there is the man who lives for his drug, who will do anything for that false promise, steal from those who give him work, from his friends, his family, yes, even from his own family, scheming for their pity, borrowing in bad faith, breaking into their very homes. All these are on the train, awake and hungry as wolves. And also on the train are the sleepers, the sleepers with open eyes who sleepwalk through their days, neither doing evil nor resisting it, like soldiers who lie down as if dead and will not join the battle, not for their cities and homes, not even for their own wives and children. For such people, how can Mike give up his own son, his Benjamin, who is guilty of nothing? He can't. Of course he can't. Not on his own anyway. But Mike isn't on his own. He knows what we all know, even when we try to forget it. We're never alone, ever. We're in our Father's presence, in the light of day and in the dark of night, even in that darkness where we run from Him, hiding our faces like fearful children. He will not leave us, no. Though we lock every window and bar every door, still He will enter. Though we empty our hearts and turn them to stone, yet shall He make His home there. He will not leave us alone. He is with all of you, as He is with me. He is with Mike and also with the bribe-taker on the train and the woman who needs her friend's husband and the man who needs a drink. He knows their needs better than they do. He knows that what they truly need is Him, and though they flee His voice, He never stops telling them that He is there. And at this moment, when Mike has nowhere to hide and nothing left to tell himself, then he can hear, and he knows that he is not alone, and he knows what it is that he must do. It has been done before, even by Him who speaks, the Father of all, who gave His own Son, His Beloved, that others might be saved. No, Francis said. Frank stopped and looked at Francis as if he couldn't remember who she was. That's it, she said. That's my quota of holiness for the year. But there's more. I know, I can see it coming. The guy kills his kid, right? I have to tell you, Frank, that's a crummy story. What are we supposed to get from a story like that? We should kill our own kid to save some stranger? There's more to it than that. Okay then, make it a trainload of strangers, make it ten trainloads of strangers. I should do this because the so-called father of all did it? Is that the point? How do people think up stuff like this, anyway? It's an awful story. It's true. True? Frankie, please, you're not a moron. Dr. Violet knows a man who was on that train. I'll just bet he does. Let me guess. Francis screwed her eyes shut then popped them open, 
the drug addict. Yes, and he reformed afterward and worked with street kids in Brazil and showed everybody that Mike's sacrifice was not in vain. Is that how it goes? You're missing the point, Francis. It isn't about that. Let me finish. No, it's a terrible story, Frank. People don't act like that. I sure as hell wouldn't. You haven't been asked. He doesn't ask us to do what we can't do. I don't care what he asks. Where'd you learn to talk like that anyway? You don't even sound like yourself. I had to change. I had to change the way I thought about things. Maybe I sound a little different too. Yeah? Well, you sounded better when you were drunk. Frank seemed about to say something, but didn't. He backed up a step and lowered himself into a hideous, plaid, lazy boy left behind by the previous tenant. He was stuck in the upright position. I don't care if the Almighty poked a gun in my ear. I would never do that, Francis said. Not in a million years. Neither would you. Honest now, little brother, would you grind me up if I was the one down in the mill? Would you push the Francis Burger button? It isn't a choice I have to make. Yeah, yeah, I know, but say you did. I don't. He doesn't hold guns to our heads. Oh, really? What about hell, huh? What do you call that? But so what? Screw hell, I don't care about hell. Do I get crunched or not? Don't put me to the test, Francis. It's not your place. I'm down in the mill, Frank. I'm stuck in the gears and here comes the train with Mother Teresa and 500 assholes on board. Ooh, 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 ooh. Who, Frank, who? Who's it going to be? Francis wanted to laugh. Glumly erect in the chair, hands gripping the armrests, Frank looked like he was about to take off into a hurricane. But she kept that little reflection to herself. Frank was thinking, and she had to let him. She knew what his answer would be. In the end, there could be no other answer. But he couldn't just say, she's my sister, and let it go at that. No, he'd have to noodle up some righteous, high-sounding reasons for choosing her. And maybe he wouldn't at first. Maybe he'd chicken out and come up with the Bible school answer. Francis was ready for that. She was up for a fight. She could bring him around. Francis didn't mind a fight, and she especially didn't mind fighting for her brother. For her brother, she'd fought neighborhood punks, snotty teachers, and unappreciative coaches, loan sharks, landlords, bouncers. From the time she was a scabby, neat girl, she'd taken on her own father. And if push came to shove, she'd take on the father of all, that incomprehensible bully. She was ready. It would be like old times, the two of them waiting in her room upstairs while Frank Sr. worked himself into a rage below, muttering, slamming doors, stinking up the house with the cigars he puffed when he was on a tear. She remembered it all, the tremor in her legs, the hammering pulse in her neck, as the smell of smoke grew stronger. She could still taste that smoke and hear her father's steps on the stairs, Frank panting beside her, moving closer, his voice whispering her name and her own voice answering as fear gave way to ferocity and unaccountable joy. It's okay, Frankie. I'm here. That was Akhil Sharma reading The Night in Question by Tobias Wolfe. It's collected in Our Story Begins, New and Selected Stories, published in paperback by Vintage Contemporaries. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it. 
no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Akhil, now that you've emerged uh, shrieking from the boiling water, what is this story about? Is it about the love between a brother and a sister? Is it about child abuse? Is it about moral decision-making, all of the above? You know, I've read this like 16 times, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, on my most recent reading, this is the story of a delusional woman. You know, it's like uh, children who grew up in alcoholic families. They begin to take comfort in protecting other people. And the very ending of, of this story suggests that, just the thrill that she gets from creating a situation where it's her against the world. There's something a little bit wrong with her. That's what I noticed on this reading. I mean, which is the reason this is a great story, that you can read it 16 times and it keeps you keep thinking, oh, so now I know what this story is about. One of the questions for me on reading it is, why does Frank tell her this story? Why does Frank say, I'm going to tell my sister Frances, who's played this role in my life, this particular story of this sermon? What do you think he's trying to get from her at that moment? My interpretation of him, based on sort of um, dealing with crazies, right, <laughs> is that crazy people are so pathologically selfish that they don't really care. He has come back from this this sermon, and he is in this sort of heightened state. And he wants to either live that excitement again. You know, it's like uh, us fantasizing about cocaine, or it's about him working through what that story means, and the only way that he can work through it is by by saying it out loud. You know, like sometimes... The only way to understand something is by reading that passage out loud. I think it could be something similar. Or it could be, you know, that he is just completely indifferent to his sister. It could be anybody else, mm -hmm. you know, and he would mm -hmm. just behave in the same way. I guess the larger question is why Wolf has Frank tell us this story. I mean, he sets up a parallel between these two boys who are actually quite similar. You know, Frank as a baby doesn't ever learn his lesson. He doesn't ever stop grabbing for that watch even though he's told not to. And Benny is told a hundred times not to go in the mill. He goes in the mill. You know, these are boys who haven't learned an important lesson that their father's been trying to teach them. And yet the fathers are so opposed, you know, and Frank's father would take any opportunity to hurt him. And Mike would do almost anything not to hurt him, but he's been put in this position. So I wonder about those particular parallels and why, why you think Wolf set it up in this way. When we set up parallels, right, we don't want to do exact parallels because, you know, then it's two one for one. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the way that I think of it is that Francis could be him. It could be the father in the story. So the sister is taking on the role of the father mm -hmm. in, in the nested story. And, I mean, the reason you have these nested stories is because they, they sort of reflect back on each other. They just intensify the, the external story. But he's done this in, in a bunch of other stories where he'll have a story 
and then a story reflected within it or memories. And I, I sort of feel that the writers of Dirty Realism that Tobias Wolff gets lumped with, they have this weird engagement with real time. You know, in Raymond Carver, in Wolf, in Richard Ford, there's some belief that part of the story's ability to convince us of its truth is if we're moving forward in basically real time. And then how do you short-circuit it? Because real time itself is boring. So the way that he does it in many of these stories is by having memories play a very large role Mm -hmm. or creating these nesting things. Carver does it, I, I feel, primarily by just working in much more limited periods of time. And the empty space in Carver acts as a way of generating all the world that is left out. Whereas here, all the world gets crushed in, you know, some mm-hmm. very dense world. And the, the, the sermon or the telling of it is designed to draw the most intense emotions out of Francis. Mm-hmm. It's set up in that way, whether or not Frank knows that. Why do you think it makes her so angry? Is she being told that she wasted her life protecting her brother? Is she being told that, you know, she's made a mistake in life? Well, first of all, nobody wants to really hear gruesome stories, right? <laughs> it's largely, I don't want to hear your stuff because it is, this is miserable. And mm-hmm. then I don't want to have my loyalty challenged. If I am doing this thing because my being united against our father gives me a sense of control over my world, then to some extent I need this person to always stay a child. All my motivations are screwy. Yeah. Well, she needs him to need her. Mm -hmm. And if he's no longer an addict and he's no longer being abused, he doesn't need her in the same way. But it's very interesting what happens to to the image of God in her mind, you know, that God has gone from being, you know, something that maybe has saved her brother to being this man with a gun to her temple Mm -hmm. or a gun to his temple, making him choose. There's a whole lot of anger in that image, too. Or he's turned into the father, the abusive father. I mean, he's God undergoes some strange transformation in her mind. I mean, and Frank's question is legitimate. Like, why are you asking this? You know, what's there to gain in asking that question? And she's the one who's putting a gun to his head. Yeah. And saying that, oh, I'm not the one making this choice, but it's really God making this choice. Again, sort of shifting of responsibility. This is something that he does, that Tobias Wolff does all the time. We don't really know how legitimate our narrator is or the, how legitimate the point of view of the narrator is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a level of bravery that I have no desire for, you know, in my own writing. <laughs> right, I just don't. Right. You can lose a lot of readers that way. Mm-hmm. You know, I aim for the broad middle, whereas Tobias Wolff aims for intensely engaged and intensely intelligent readers. I actually copied out something he said in an interview in Baum where he was talking about this idea of morality in his fiction. And he said, it isn't a question of the stories being moral fables. Don't do this because something terrible will happen. It's more an exploration of the moral sense that dominates our lives for better or worse, the constant effort of trying to find the right thing to do in complex situations. I can't imagine not having that kind of reckoning in my work because it's at the center of our lives. Everyone I know is puzzling things out, trying to figure out the right thing to do. We're all in a web of connection to friends, family, community, and the moral sense is what determines how we honor those connections. To leave that out of one's fiction seems to me to be impossible. It's going to be there, so it's better that it not be there by default, but that you have some edge of consciousness about its workings. And obviously that's very central to what's happening in this story. Though at the end, 
it's not a moral fable, as he said. Mm-hmm. So there's no conclusion drawn. There's fumbling, mm-hmm. fumbling that we can probably identify with. First of all, I don't think that for the vast majority of people, morality has anything to do with their lives. Most people think that they are right. Most people are living their lives as sleepers, mm-hmm. you know. So Those it, are the people reading your stories. Those are the people <laughs> reading my stories. I mean, that's the vast, vast majority of humanity. But that, that aside, it makes sense that if you feel that this is a central element of existence, then you want to put it at the very center of your story. But even accepting that, I mean, that's something that most writers do, bring moral questions into the center of their, of their writing. What makes Wolf so interesting is the way he does it and the intensity that he generates. Because the intensity that he generates is not mimetic. It is not lifelike. You know, it is no more lifelike than the pressure inside some nuclear reactor. That doesn't mean that we don't gain something from observing this and reading these things. But I don't read Wolf and think of this as reading about moral questions. Instead, when I read Wolf, it's feeling intense feelings. That's how I experience them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I agree with him that all of that morality exists, but that's not my experience of the story. Yeah, yeah. Now, you mentioned earlier that there are parts of the story that you have a tendency to skip. What are those moments that are too difficult? I'm almost like a skipping stone when I read them. Like, uh, you know, I'll read until we get that sense, oh, some terrible thing is going to happen to the kid, and then I don't want to read anymore. And so I read, but I read, you know, just on the surface. And then when he goes into the machine, again, I sort of begin to pull myself out. I just can't bear to be in his story. And and this happens to me in most of Tobias Wolff's stories. The emotions are so intense that I just can't bear to be inside them. For me, the, the most emotional moment in the story is that moment where Francis strikes back at the father for the first time and ends up on the floor with a split lip mm-hmm. and uh, is laughing. Frank is having a normal reaction. He's crying. Mm-hmm. She's laughing like a madwoman. And all bound up in that moment is, is sort of satisfaction, pleasure, pain. For me, that's the most intense moment of the story. For me, the, um, the Frances moments that are most intense are when she thinks, oh, you have to pick me. You have to pick me. Those to me feel very powerful. You know, this belief that if I love you enough, you will love me. There's something slightly twisted in, in what Wolf has done by giving them all the same name. Yeah. Frank is the father, Frank is the son, and Francis, you know, which could be shortened to Frankie, is the daughter. Why has he done that? This is sort of the, the classic thing that you should never do. You know, in, my, in that story that I wrote, Surrounded by Sleep, the two brothers have names that begin with the, with, with the same, Aman and Ajay. And I changed it in the novel just because they were it was too similar here it just feels like everybody is a distorted version of everybody else you know that everybody's sort of working this one misery out and at the same time we as readers are implicated somehow you know we're all franks we're all francis's because we read the story we read frank's retelling of the story at the center of the story and we have to think about what we would do in that situation yes and in that sense, we are implicated much more directly than in most fiction. Yeah. You know, because in most fiction, we, we're asked to identify with characters. 
but we're not forced as clearly to make a choice. So we are implicated in that way. And that's another reason why this story makes me resist it so much. Mm-hmm. You know, that it's demanding all these things from me. I was interested rereading this story after reading your novel, Family Life, because at the center of your novel is a terrible tragedy that no one is really responsible for. And yet throughout the book, people feel a need to blame. They want someone to blame for it. They want to find a moral authority or some some way to sort of unclaim what has happened. And I I felt some of the same tension in the novel. I think that's one of the reasons that uh, this story, I find it so affecting. I mean, just mm-hmm. reading it, I, I keep wanting to cry, which is not how I like to relate to fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, the, the thing that's really powerful is, you know, how do you help the people you love? You know, how do you help them when they don't want to be helped? How do you help them without destroying yourself? Why do you seek out your own self-destruction, you know? Because it's easier to destroy yourself than it is to have a happy life. All of those questions feel incredibly alive in this story. You know, I I touch upon those questions in my novel, but the intensity that's generated here is just so, I mean, just so off the charts. Right. Well, that's the beauty of the short story. His short story. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Akhil. Oh, my pleasure. Akhil Sharma's novel, Family Life, will be published this month. You can subscribe to this podcast in the iTunes store, where you can download more than 80 previous episodes, including Tobias Wolf, reading stories by Dennis Johnson and Stephanie Vaughn. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or audible.com. Subscribers to the magazine can access the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.